On Tuesday, December 17, 1957, the United States successfully fired its Intercontinental Atlas missile from Cape Canaveral in Florida. A statue of the late General Billy Mitchell was unveiled in Washington, D.C. Operation Madball and The Joker is Wild were in movie theaters. The lineup on television included Cheyenne, Highway Patrol, Phil Silvers as Sergeant Bilko, and the final broadcast of the Nat King Cole Show aired on the NBC television network. Where have you gone, Nat King Cole? Welcome to Where Have You Gone? People, places, and things that are gone but not forgotten, forgotten but not gone, and the people and places saving these stories for your enjoyment and benefit today. I'm Morris Eckhaus. Nat King Cole was born on March 17, 1919, in Montgomery, Alabama. He died February 15, 1965, in Santa Monica, California. The term five-tool player is usually applied to a baseball player who can hit, hit for power, run, field, and throw. But National Public Radio has applied the term to the legendary entertainer Nat King Cole. Mary McCann wrote that Cole was originator of the guitar-bass-piano-trio format, an influential pianist, a barrier-breaker between jazz and popular music, and a multimedia superstar. Songs such as Straighten Up and Fly Right, Nature Boy, Get Your Kicks on Route 66, Unforgettable, and The Christmas Song are at the tip-top of a musical legacy we can still enjoy today on CDs, albums, and YouTube. Cole has also been called the Jackie Robinson of television. He has been gone over 50 years, but his music and other accomplishments can still entertain and inspire us today. On June 7, 1953, he performed for the famed Ninth Cavalcade of Jazz concert at Wrigley Field in Chicago. The Boutwell Auditorium in Birmingham, Alabama is also an important place in the Cole story. It was once known as Birmingham's Municipal Auditorium. Cole made an appearance there on April 10, 1956, resulting in a riot that ended his concert prematurely. It's an event worthy of note. Cole's biography for the Songwriters Hall of Fame says, Cole also became a hot sandlot baseball player, and while he never made it to the pros, he became an ardent follower of the Los Angeles Dodgers. He sang the national anthem before the second game of the 1959 World Series. One of the best uses of Nat King Cole's music in film is at the very beginning of my favorite year, from 1982, when Cole sings Stardust. Music by Hoagy Carmichael from 1927. My Favorite Year is one of the best films of the 1980s and just a great film. If you like Where Have You Gone, you're almost certain to like My Favorite Year. Cole appeared in several movies himself during his lifetime. According to the Internet Movie Database, he appeared uncredited in Citizen Kane as the pianist in El Rancho. 
I'll talk more about Cole in the movies later on in this episode. You may have heard his voice and singing in any number of television shows, including Breaking Bad, New Girl, Parenthood, Family Guy, The Simpsons, The Blacklist, Pan Am, The Vampire Diaries, Call the Midwife, Person of Interest, This Is Us, and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And those are just from the 2010s. Indeed, Nat King Cole is gone, but he is not forgotten. We hope you are enjoying this episode of Where Have You Gone? For more information about the show, its topics, and its guests, check out our website at whygpodcast.com. There you can also find recommendations for fascinating books, films, TV shows, and recordings to learn even more about our topics, guests, and ideas. You can also find us on Facebook at Where Have You Gone hyphen podcast and on Twitter at WHYG podcast. And now back to the episode. The Nat King Cole story is a big story and much of it is well known. But some portions of the story get more attention than others. When Cole died, Sepia Publishing Company of Fort Worth, Texas, published a magazine-style tribute titled The Incomparable Nat King Cole, a Sepia celebrity book. It was edited by A.S. Doc Young. If you recognize the name A.S. Doc Young, it might be as an important African-American journalist who wrote Great Negro Baseball Stars, Negro Firsts in Sports, The Mets from Mobile, and other books. He was a contributor to the Los Angeles Times, sports editor of Jet, Ebony, and Hugh magazines, a motion picture publicist, and executive editor of the Los Angeles Sentinel. One article in the publication is titled Baseball's Number One Fan. The subtitle says Nat King Cole had three great loves. Baseball was one of them. The article is illustrated with photos of Cole and Sandy Koufax, Cole and Dean Martin and Vince Edwards, and Cole and Soupy Sales, all in baseball uniforms. If you troll around the internet, you can find many pictures of Cole with ballplayers at ballparks, including one of Cole speaking to Jackie Robinson at Wrigley Field in Chicago in 1954. Another anecdote about Cole and baseball I found in the book September in the Rain, The Life of Nelson Riddle by Peter J. Levinson. As the story goes, Cole sometimes found it necessary to record while in the midst of engagements in Chicago or New York with Nelson Riddle. On one such Saturday afternoon recording session, there was a sound that continued to leak into the control room as Nelson and the orchestra began running down the songs that were to be recorded. Considerable recording time had been lost while trying to track down the source of the noise. Finally, someone realized that the sound was emanating from a radio Nat Cole was listening to. He was tuned into a broadcast of a Milwaukee Braves game 
as he was a fervent admirer of Henry Aaron, who years later became the all-time home run king. Nat King Cole was a performer on stage, on radio, on television, and in film. There are 21 roles listed for Nat King Cole as an actor at the Internet Movie Database. The nine credits from 1941 to 1949 are mostly uncredited and mostly Cole playing himself. There are nine more credits from the 1950s. In two 1953 films, Small Town Girl and Fritz Lang's Noir, The Blue Gardenia, Cole has roles that are small but important to the stories, doing what he does best, singing and playing the piano. He had another small role in the 1957 film Istanbul. In his book Straighten Up and Fly Right, Will Friedwald calls Cole's performance in Chinagate his only really satisfying performance other than from a strictly musical standpoint. Chinagate, written, produced, and directed by Samuel Fuller, stars Gene Barry, Angie Dickinson, and Cole, billed as appearing in his first dramatic role. In 1958, Cole portrayed the musical legend W.C. Handy in St. Louis Blues. The film was a passion project of George Garabedian. If you recognize that name, you are probably a fan of old-time radio. Years after St. Louis Blues, Garabedian's Mark 56 record label issued numerous shows on vinyl albums, including Norman Corwin's On a Note of Triumph. By the time the finished film hit movie theaters, Garabedian was no longer involved, and the film was not a great success, despite showcasing the talents of Cole, Ruby D, Juano Hernandez, Eartha Kitt, Cab Calloway, Ella Fitzgerald, Mahalia Jackson, Pearl Bailey, and 11-year-old Billy Preston. In 1959's Night of the Quarter Moon, Cole plays Cy Robin, a role as in Chinagate, not dependent on his musical skills. The cast also includes Julie London in the lead, John Drew Barrymore, Dean Jones, Agnes Moorhead, and James Edwards. This film does not seem to have stood the test of time, despite, or perhaps due to, depicting contemporary racial issues. And lastly, there's Cat Ballou from 1965. Will Friedwald devotes seven pages of his 600-plus page biography of Cole to Cat Ballou and calls it his best comedy, his best musical, and his best and only Western all in one. Cole plays one of two street singers, along with Stubby K, who pop in and out of the film to provide something of a musical narration. Cat Ballou was a big hit in 1965, with Jane Fonda winning a Golden Globe in the title role and Lee Marvin earning an Academy Award for Best Actor in the dual role of Kid Shaleen and Tim Strawn. It may not be a great film, but it does stand the test of time as an entertainment and serves as one last big-screen showcase for Nat King Cole. Sadly, he did not live to see it. The film was released in June 1965, about four months after his death. Cole's film work is a small part of his entertainment legacy, so why bother? Well, it fits with our theme in more of the forgotten but not gone category. You don't need me to tell you that Nat King Cole was and is a musical legend, 
but perhaps noting his film work will give you more of an idea of another aspect of his career you can enjoy. Hollywood, the film capital of the world, is also the home of the house that Nat built. That's the Capitol Records building at 1750 Vine Street, a block or two north of the intersection of Hollywood and Vine. Capitol Records was founded in 1942 by Johnny Mercer, Buddy De Silva, and Glenn E. Wallachs. Welton Beckett and Associates designed the Capitol Records building in Hollywood, one of the most distinctive buildings ever built. It was completed in 1956. It was designated Los Angeles Historic Cultural Monument 857 in 2006. And it's called the house that Nat built because so much of the income of Capitol Records was generated by Nat King Cole and his recordings. Nat King Cole had many collaborators in his success, and I'll end this segment by mentioning four of them, all also connected to Capitol Records and all musical legends on their own. First is Pete Rigolo. Will Friedwald says Rigolo was a kind of John the Baptist in Nat King Cole's life and career. At IMDb, he's called one of the great arrangers of the big band era. He has music credits on TV shows including Thriller, Leave it to Beaver, The Fugitive, Run for Your Life, Felony Squad, The Bold Ones, The Lawyers, and many others. At one time, he was musical director for Capitol Records. One especially notable collaboration between Rigolo and Cole is on the song Lush Life, written by Billy Strayhorn. Chapter 6 of Friedwald's Straighten Up and Fly Right, The Life and Music of Nat King Cole, is titled Nat and Nelson. Nelson being Nelson Riddle, multiple Grammy Award winner, winner of an Academy Award for 1974's The Great Gatsby, nominee for four other Oscars, and an eight-time Emmy Award nominee. He was an arranger, composer, band leader, and orchestrator from the late 1940s to the mid-1980s. He worked with Cole, Frank Sinatra, Rosemary Clooney, the Smothers Brothers, and, near the end of his life, Linda Ronstadt, in a comeback that resulted in his final Grammy Award. There's a chapter about Riddle and Cole in September in the Rain, the Nelson Riddle biography. Suffice to say that Nelson Riddle is gone, and should not be forgotten. The same applies to Billy May. In 1993, Capitol Records released a two-disc set titled Nat King Cole, The Billy May Sessions. These include 19 songs recorded in 1957, from May 14 to August 7, including Blue Moon, Don't Get Around Much Anymore, You'll Never Know, and The Party's Over. In the same year, May was the musical director for Stan Freeberg's radio program, The Stan Freeberg Show. May was a frequent collaborator with Freeberg and also with Frank Sinatra. Finally, there's Gordon Jenkins. Jenkins was a performer and arranger, conductor, composer who worked extensively with Sinatra and the Weavers and many others. Jenkins and Cole collaborated on the albums Love is the Thing in 1957 and its sequel, The Very Thought of You, in 1958. To say that both albums are classics is quite the understatement. Rigolo, Riddle, May, and Jenkins 
each brought something different to the music of Nat King Cole. Together they are part of an amazing musical legacy. Since they're all Grammy Award nominees or winners, they all have a connection to the Grammy Museum in Los Angeles, where an exhibit about Nat King Cole opened in 2020. After a break, I'll be joined by Grammy Museum curator Nick Vega to talk about Cole and the exhibit. For more information about Where Have You Gone, this episode and other episodes in the series, visit our website, whygpodcast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening. Where Have You Gone? Nat King Cole continues, and I'm pleased to be joined by Nick Vega, curator and director of exhibitions at the Grammy Museum. Nick, welcome to Where Have You Gone? Hi, Morris. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. And I'm excited to talk to you about Nat King Cole and your exhibit at the Grammy Museum. Grammy Museum presents This Is Nat King Cole. Tell me about when and how you decided to do an exhibit about Nat King Cole. You know, this is a project that we actually launched a couple of days before we had to close due to the pandemic last year. So just to kind of rewind for a second, we started talking with the, the Nat King Cole estate, um, his two daughters in particular, and some close family associates. Let's say about, I don't know, two years ago or so, we knew that Nat's centennial was on the horizon, you know, in, in 2019. And, uh, you know, with the curatorial calendar being as such, that the Grammy Museum, we didn't have an immediate opening then, but we, we, we came up with a really great idea to kind of bookend that centennial celebration by launching a smaller exhibition, a very intimate exhibition to the personal side of Nat King Cole in spring of 2020. So once we, you know, were able to pinpoint the date, pinpoint the location within the Grammy Museum, we really just rolled up our sleeves and got to work. And that was an amazing process in and of itself. Again, working closely with Nat's two daughters in particular to select items from Nat's personal collection, um, many of which have never been on, on public display. So. We were able to develop this very personal story. You know, we really wanted to to frame it as such that this was from Nat's perspective and the family's perspective. You know, we had our design input and our curatorial input as museum professionals, but at its core, this is a narrative that's truly been, you know, written by by Nat's family and, and the artifacts themselves. So what we did was we, like I said, a lot of work, some really fun design meetings, and, you know, we did a lot of great research and just kind of really wanted to put as much information as possible in this exhibition, open it up to the public, and literally, I'd say about two to three days later, we unfortunately had to close our doors due to the pandemic. And that was really just frustrating, but we understood the situation. You know, obviously, we wanted to make sure that we were operating in a safe environment, you know, in the museum. So it was our in our best judgment to, to close the museum. And as, you know, we dealt with the pandemic, just like the world did for the past year, 13 months, we felt it necessary to keep this story on display when we were going to reopen. And for us, you know, during the past year, 
We had no idea when that was, but the one certainty was that when we do reopen, Nat's story will be told and will be made available to the public. And I'm so happy to announce that in working with the family and working with the family associates, doing a little magic on my end, adjusting my curatorial calendar for the museum, you know, we're able to re-release, for lack of a better term, this exhibition and make it available to the public through fall of 2021. And I'm really excited and I can't wait to, to have people come to the Grammy Museum at LA Live to see this exhibit and experience the stories that we're telling within the gallery walls. It sounds like it's been a wonderful process to get to the point of having the exhibit ready to go. Give me a sense of of who was around the table and, you know, did the family, was it mostly what they wanted to talk about through the artifacts and the text and everything that makes up an exhibition? Were there certain things that you from the museum side felt that had to be addressed? How did that work? It's a great question. Uh, so, you know, Nat King Cole is so iconic. You know, I would say, regardless of your generation, what area you grew up, chances are you're familiar, you know, with his work in, in some shape or form, whether it's, you know, his his countless hits, you know, his, his film careers, television career, just Nat being that iconic figure that he is, respectfully, his story has been told. And, we're, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad to say that, you know, I'm glad that he has received the recognition during his life and after he passed, that's exciting to see. So when we had this opportunity to work with the family, we, you know, we were very clear in our early discussions that we didn't want this to just to be another retrospective, or we didn't want this just to focus on his artistry. Of course, you know, that those stories or those themes will be intertwined in the story that we wanted to tell at the Grammy Museum, cognizant of the fact that we wanted to put a new spin on this and a unique spin on this. And when we started talking about the idea of let's really get into Nat's personal life, that was something that personally intrigued me. When we talk, tell stories of artists just kind of holistically at the museum, anytime we can put that personal spin or offer some insight that fans you know, won't be able to find on Wikipedia or through Google searches, you know, anytime we can create those opportunities there, I'm all for that. And when we presented that sort of idea to the family and the family associates, that was something that they were really excited about. And I think a, lo a lot of that had to do with the collection that they had access to. The fact that they had, you know, handwritten letters that Nat wrote to his wife while he was on the road, or they had, you know, a cardigan sweater that Nat would wear when he was just lounging around the house watching ball games on, on, on television. There were so many artifacts in the collection that really had that personal spin on it. And that was something that we really wanted to highlight. And we felt it necessary to highlight in this story. It sounds like they may have enough to do a museum all their own on Nat King Cole. Oh, I could, I believe so. Especially when you start, you know, you start to tap into Nat the artist and, you know, you look at his catalog and all of the artifacts associated with that. Yeah, there were, there were just so many wonderful things that were part of this collection. My only regret is that, you know, we were a little confused we were confined, not a little, we were certainly confined to the physical space in which we had to tell this story or rather show this story. It's in a smaller gallery setting on the fourth floor, but I guess, you know, to kind of play devil's advocate to that, what's really special about that is that it is so intimate, you know, because it is a smaller gallery that's about 550 square feet total, um, you know, and there may be a couple dozen artifacts on, physical artifacts on display, plenty of text, plenty of photographs, you know, 
Um, there's also some great media content as well, but it is a really intimate space. So I kind of, you know, in, in hindsight, I, yes, I, I would like to, you know, been able to put this in a 3000 square foot gallery, but then I also found myself wondering, you know, would, would that impact still be there? Would, would guests still be able to get that, that sort of intimate tone that we've set just because of the physical space in and of itself? And in that space, it looks like you focus on Nat, the recording artist, Nat, the global sensation, Nat, the family man, and the Nat King Cole show. And I want to ask you about how the exhibit reflects his place in time with regards to civil rights, because it seems like that's an important part of the story. Certainly is. And that's something that when we really, you know, we dug deep into the, the research phase, the curation part of the exhibition, after we, you know, had a sense of what artifacts are available and we were, we were able to take a really deep dive into those artifacts and the provenance and not just the condition, but the stories associated with those artifacts. It was extremely clear here that not only were these items from his personal collection that really spoke to Nat as the individual, as the loving husband and the father, that was clear from those artifacts. But when we you know, took a closer look, it was quite clear that, okay, there were some, some strong connections to you know, the civil rights movement, the era in which Nat was not only living in, but Nat was you know, this public figure that was admired by both white Americans and black Americans during that time. So for us, these stories of you know, Nat as a pioneer during the civil rights era became immediately clear. And that was something that, that, was something that we kind of, we focused on in terms of a tone, the tone of our narrative. And, and I wanna be really clear, and this is something that we strategically did was, to a certain degree, we're not in the text and in the, the stories presented in this exhibition, we do not specifically say or claim that Nat is, you know, one of the leading civil rights activists of the mid 20th century here in the United States. What we do is we want to create this environment where guests can question that, where guests can analyze the artifacts that are on display. And we're, we ask questions that kind of lead to that, but we want guests to make their own assumptions because one thing that we did learn that not, and I think this is true when you go back and you look at the newspaper articles or you look at the, the interviews of the time, Nat was very clear in saying that he, you know, he wasn't, on the front lines marching. But our spin was, or our thought was, that's true. And he's completely respected for that. But the fact that, you know, he was touring the segregated South, playing shows to white audiences and black audiences during one night, that's pretty prolific in and of itself. The fact that he was this international touring superstar in an era where there weren't a lot of African-American artists who were touring internationally, or at least going to the places that Nat went to, that's groundbreaking in and of itself. When you really look at his you know, relationship with Capitol Records and his, his rights to licensing and owning his own music and you know, being able to record the types of al albums that he wanted to, you know, that is pretty prolific given the context of the era. So there were a lot of things, a lot of these stories that we you know, were able to kind of pull from the artifacts that were available to us. And when we take a step back and you look at his career, with the context of the era in which he was creating music and the era in which he was living, I think it becomes quite clear that, you know, it's undeniable that Nat King Cole was this prolific individual who was very supportive of civil rights for African-Americans in the mid-20th century. And that's my take on it, too. But it sounds to me like you are presenting evidence, so to speak, and, and you're presenting the history and you're letting people make their own judgments on 
where he fits into that discussion. Is that right? Yes. And that's part of, you know, not just with this particular exhibition, but with all of the exhibitions that we'd like to curate. I think our, our number one objective, you know, along with educating the public about who this particular artist is or the genre or the subject that we're featuring is to create that dialogue, to create that sense of dialogue, either within the gallery or when you, you know, you leave and that experience is sitting with you for a while when you're on your way home or you're talking with your family at the dinner table. We want to create that sense of dialogue through the stories that we tell. And I think this particular exhibition does a pretty we're pretty successful if I, you know, if I could say that as modest as possible, you know, we were able to do that because these artifacts, I just, I can't stress this enough. These artifacts are just so amazing and they really speak to this. And it's pretty clear that, you know, when you, when you take a step back and you see, you know, what Nat was going through and what Nat lived through, particularly during the late forties to late fifties in the United States, this the story itself is, is quite clear. Are there artifacts connected specifically with his performing in the South and performing for segregated audiences? We have a couple of pieces. Um, one piece that really stands out is there's a playbill from the 1950s, mid-1950s, from the Copacabana Club in New York, where for years there was a, a no-blacks policy, and it was, it was a specific policy. Harry Belafonte was, you know, denied access there in the 40s. Nat you know, throughout his career played there with the trio, but then also as an individual artist. And I think that in and of itself is pretty special because, you know, it's a playbill. But, you know, I think when you really take a, a, a step back and you, you analyze it, you can see the context. It's like, wow, that's pretty impressive that not only was, you know, his name on this printed pamphlet that was used to bring people into the club, his photo was on there, his, you know, a, a rendering of his image was on there. So, that just kind of speaks to not only, you know, how Nat was seen in terms of an artist, but the fact that, you know, he was able to kind of break those barriers at this iconic club who historically had segregated audiences. Another thing that's that's pretty fascinating that I, I'm, I'm kind of drawn to in this exhibition is um, we have a novel that's autographed and inscribed by Langston Hughes. You know, Langston Hughes during the 1920s just captured Life of Harlem and captured that and recorded that. And, the, and he was seen as sort of kind of the voice of change at that time as well. And the fact that, you know, he was able to build this friendship with Nat King Cole and he inscribed this very beautiful note to him and wishing him all the best of luck. I think that kind of speaks that, you know, he was, that Nat was viewed by others as, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a little cautious to say groundbreaking or a pioneer, but he was definitely in, involved in, in making change, whether it was indirectly or directly. I can go on and on about the amount of artifacts, the different types of artifacts in the exhibition, but there, we have some amazing pieces, and I just I can't stress that enough. And I suspect you have something in the ex, uh, exhibition where you talk about uh, the Coles moving into Hancock Park, an all-white neighborhood of Los Angeles. That's an important part of the story. Yeah, we do. So what we do have is uh, we to kind of connect the dots so to speak, from a, a narrative point of view, we do have this very detailed timeline of Nat's life. And in that timeline, obviously, starts with his birth in 1919 and, and extends beyond his death. You know, we talk about his Lifetime Achievement Award that he received from the, the Recording Academy in 1990. In that, we do note in, you know, 1948, when he and his wife moved into Hancock Park in Los Angeles, which is, you know, just miles away from the Grammy Museum. Yeah, there was a neighborhood where it was whites only and you know there were 
you know, he received some not only threats for that, but it just what it was one of those situations where, you know, obviously at the time Jim Crow laws in the South were still very much in effect and he was traveling and he experienced that. But the fact that he had to experience that when he came home and, you know, in his own home and when he was there with his family, I can't even imagine what that what that would do to one's psyche. But, you know, Nat being Nat and being, you know, just this, you know, amazing individual was able to deal with that. But again, I think you take a step back and you look at it from a historical analytical perspective, the fact that he was able to break those barriers and purchase a house in that neighborhood and had the opportunity to move to other neighborhoods here in Los Angeles that were predominantly African-American or where other areas where he would have been received with open arms, you know, he opted to stay there because, you know, I have to believe that something inside of him had to think that there's a bigger reasoning for, for moving in this neighborhood, aside from these beautiful homes and manicured lawns. Exactly. And one of the things that hasn't really jumped out in what I've talked about so far regarding Nat King Cole, I don't think anyway, is the diversity in terms of, as you mentioned, he recorded songs in French, German, Italian, Japanese. Uh, he did a Spanish language al- album. How important is it for you to show his diversity when when I'm sure the Grammy Museum has a pretty diverse audience? We do. Uh, and yeah, we're, and that's one of the things that we're extremely proud of. For this particular story, again, you know, just keep going back to that notion that Nat was doing things, you know, at a time where he wasn't doing what was expected of him. He was going above and beyond that. He was singing in different languages. He was doing country themed, you know, uh, records. And that was something where, you know, I, again, I think when most people, I don't want to compare this exhibition to other Nat King Cole exhibitions, but I think there's this assumption that, oh, Nat King Cole, I know this smooth voice. I know these ballads that he sings. We really wanted to showcase, yes, that is Nat. You know, we know Un- Unforgettable. We know, you know, the 86 hits that, top the top 40 charts throughout his career but did you know that you know just to your point he also sang in Japanese in Spanish and not only did he sing in those languages but he also regularly toured those parts of the world and that's impressive in and of itself as well he had that fan base there that was global and in terms of diversity and his impact on civil rights one of the most important things reflective of good and bad is the short-lived Nat King Cole show on NBC television. How are you able to incorporate that into the exhibit? We were very fortunate. And this was, this is, you know, I mean, again, I can't stress this enough. The family was amazing in being able to open up their archives and select some items that we, the physical objects that we were able to add to this exhibition. But we also had some great partners, some friends of the family who actually owned licensing rights to the Nat King Cole show. And when we started talking with them about and working with them with the family and really developing this exhibition, we asked if we can feature that that content in this exhibition. And they were very much in favor of that. And we then essentially created this huge screen, which takes up an entire wall of the gallery. And we have on a loop the original full-length episodes of, I think we have about four different episodes uh, that are featured in the, in the gallery with some amazing audio, original audio. You know, there are guests, that just, I know there's one in particular with Sammy Davis Jr. and Peggy Lee on there. And that was important for us on a number of different levels. One, that media content was amazing to see Nat on that scale, you know, and to see the Nat King Cole show, 
because I know that that's something that's closely associated with his name. You know, you hear Nat King Cole Capital Records. You also hear, you know, the Nat King Cole show. But to actually see that content and not just the edited sizzle reel, you know, these these whole full length clips, you know, from the, the 1950s, we really wanted to do that. But then what we also wanted to do was we wanted to tell that story, too. And we wanted to tell it in a way where we started it off. And I, you know, I hope I'm not giving away too much of the story because I really encourage everyone to come out to the museum and, you know, and, and see this exhibition. But the story that's associated with the particular episodes that are on display is we, we talk about how Nat was one of the first African-American artists to have to host, to be the lead host of a nationally televised variety show. I mean, and that's, I mean, that's groundbreaking in and of itself. But then when we started talking about the history and the run of the show, where it was only on for a few years, and we started talking about, you know, how there were issues, and I'm going to use that term loosely as it relates to sponsorship, that's when Nat decided to pull out because, you know, there wasn't that support from that broadcast system. They wanted to put the show on the air, which was great, and Nat was proven to be an amazing host and was able to bring in some superstar guests to keep that show running. But without the support of broadcasting system, the national broadcasting system and national sponsors, that was just unfortunate. And I, I have to tip my cap to Nat in saying, you know what, I'm done. I can't do this. So that was pretty impressive right there just to kind of sh to tell that story, you know, in a way that, yes, he's a groundbreaking pioneer for what he did as a host, being able to break down barriers and and, and have his own show. But the fact that he, you know, essentially challenged the ad agencies of Madison Avenue during the 1950s and said, you know what, I'm not dealing with this and I'm, I'm done. And, and that's, that's, in my personal opinion, extremely commendable. We also encourage everybody, if they have the chance, especially when the exhibit is on, to get over to the Grammy Museum. Any time uh, you get a chance to visit the Grammy Museum, you've, you've always got great exhibits and things that are, are thought-provoking, and you spend some time and you learn things you didn't know. But for people that can't get to Los Angeles or get there in this time period, will there be any other way for them to experience the exhibit? Yeah, you know, one of the things that we've kind of accelerated in light of staying at home for the past year with the, through the pandemic is enhancing our, our virtual presence. You know, we, we we're, we're very excited to announce that we got through the pandemic. You're going to see a brand new museum when you, when you come to the Grammy Museum, but you're also going to see a brand new museum on grammymuseum.org, our website. So what we're, trying, what we're doing now, and we do have plans to do this with Nat King Cole, is to put some virtual exhibitions online as well. So yeah, we would strongly encourage, I personally encourage everyone to run to the Grammy Museum and, and appreciate this exhibition in person. But totally understand that not everyone has the, you know, the means or, or, you know, the time to come out here. Have a look on our website. Keep an eye on our website. Keep an eye on our social platforms. You know, if you look at all of the major YouTube and Instagram and Facebook, Twitter, at Grammy Museum, you'll, you'll be able to see some things on there. And I was just looking uh, before we started talking. And uh, at the moment, you have virtual exhibits on Peggy Lee, Leonard Bernstein, Ella Fitzgerald. Frank Sinatra. So absolutely, for people that are as interested in this time period as, as I am and as this program is, I hope they will look at that. You cover music, all genres, all time periods. 
Give me a sense of what you do and and where the stories of the artists of the mid-20th century fit into the overall work of the museum. So what's what's really fascinating about the Grammy Museum is, you know, I I think... And I, and I really like to talk about this because I think there's a lot of misconceptions that, you know, with the Grammy Museum, every exhibition that you're going to see here has to have a Grammy Award in it, or it has to relate to the to the actual Grammy Awards themselves. And, and that's not necessarily the case. You know, the Recording Academy for the past 63 years have, have given out over 85 different categories at the Grammy Awards. I think this past year, there were 86, maybe I want to say. So with that, there's 85 different types of stories that we can tell within those types of stories it's different artists and different genres and different sounds and different environments and technology and this that and the other so that's that's amazing just that alone and then on top of that you also you also bring into the mix the latin recording academy which you know has been around for over 20 years now 20 almost 25 years now and the Latin Grammys and that particular award show, there are about 50 different categories where awards are given. So we're looking at a, over 130 different types of stories that we can tell. And that kind of sets us apart from other similar music museums where it's not just a particular genre or it's not just a particular type of story, whether it's instruments or, or whatnot. So as a curator, that just gives us, gives me so much liberty just to say, okay, let's, if we want to tell a story about Nat King Cole, but it, you know, we necessarily do not have to focus on his Grammy connection or his Recording Academy connection, but we could talk about the personal side to him. We can do that because that falls under our umbrella. Additionally, just like the names that you've listed, you know, we've done some projects with Frank Sinatra estate, Ella Fitzgerald, Leonard Bernstein in recent years, which was an amazing, amazing story to tell as well. We've also done some stuff that I think a lot of people would just kind of maybe stand back and kind of scratch their head. We've done comedy exhibitions you know, that have featured Rodney Dangerfield and Cheech and Chong because comedy is an award that's given out by, you know, the Recording Academy. We have a whole permanent exhibition that's dedicated to telling the story of sacred music because that too is another category that's given out annually at at each Grammy Award. So that said, there's so many different types of stories that are on display that are constantly on display at the Grammy Museum. And what's really fun, and, you know, I, I like to say that I have the most exciting job at the museum because we're always coming up with new content. You know, we have three floors of exhibition halls where we're doing about eight to 10 different exhibition changeouts a year, whether they're large 3000 square foot exhibitions or smaller, more controlled exhibitions like the Nat King Cole. So there's always something to see. And then on top of that, um, what we've been doing and what we've kind of been doing since we opened our doors is We've really incorporated a lot of digital and internet interactive technology to complement the stories that we tell. So I like to say it's kind of a, it's the best of both worlds. If you are those traditional museum goers, I like to say that I'm in that lane where I like to see the artifacts and I like to read the, the text and I like to you know watch the videos. There we have that, but then we also have some amazing digital interactive technology that are very specific and unique that we created in house that you'll only see at the the Grammy Museum. So if digital is more your speed and you'd like to be able to download playlists and look at things on your phone and be immersed in these these interactive technologies that are based on the stories we're telling, we have that as well. So it's the complete package at the Grammy Museum. And, you know, I'm glad that we're able to reopen our doors after, you know, taking a bit of a pause um, for the pandemic, but there's plenty to see at, at our LA Live Museum. 
Well, that's great. And I, you've kind of led into my last question in talking about interactive things that you can find more information. Do you have recommendations that you will give people about the best ways to learn more about him? Yeah, you know, I have to ask Morris if you've been sitting in on some of our staff meetings. <laughs> uh, you know, that's something that, that we've been talking about. And, yeah, and, and yes, in all seriousness, what we're, what we're going to be doing and starting to implement these sort of additional content that might not be a part of the actual exhibition itself, but we want to do these sort of like curator suggested reading lists or playlists of albums and records you need to listen to to kind of really come full circle with these stories that we're telling. So that's something that that we're working on behind the scenes right now. And that's something that we'll tack on to the virtual exhibitions when, when we get ready to launch those. And what we really want to do too, and it's kind of the best of both worlds in the sense that as soon as they leave or at some point down the road, they also come back and check out the virtual exhibition online because it's not necessarily going to be an apples to apples sort of situation there. Obviously, we don't want to confuse people and make it seem like we have different content online than what's in the galleries, but we want to also add, maybe we can add some additional features online that we physically weren't able to incorporate in our gallery setting. And that's how we want to have those two stories play off one another so to to kind of come full circle with that you know we will we definitely plan to add some additional content online to complement the stories we tell inside the museum well and to swing a little baseball back into this it sounds like you've got all the bases covered i've had the good fortune to be at the uh, grammy museum once or twice I, I remember a time Alan and I were there when you had a George Carlin exhibit going, and that was outstanding. Yeah, yeah. It was a couple couple years before I arrived, I've only been on the scene for a little over three years now. You know, that's one of the other great perks of my job is that we have this vast archives of past exhibitions where I can really kind of comb through past photos and text and look at artifacts that we had. So that yeah, that the Carlin show was. Uh, I, I regret not being a part of that, but again, it was before my time. Well, and I've also been fortunate to know your founding director, Bob Santelli, for many years, and you just don't get anybody any better. And the Grammy Museum is top-notch, and I hope people will be able to get out there uh, for the exhibit if they can't take advantage of all the online at the website, grammymuseum.org. And Nick, thank you so much for taking time to Tell us uh, about the exhibit and let us know a little bit more about the Nat King Cole story. You're very welcome. And I thank you for the opportunity. This has been, uh, been a blast and I, and I hope we can do it again down the road. Do you have an idea for an episode of Where Have You Gone?, a person, place, or thing gone but not forgotten, or forgotten but not gone, with a connection to the mid-20th century? If you do, let us know. Connect with us on Facebook at Where Have You Gone Podcast, or on Twitter at WHYG Podcast. And now, back to the show. The Nat King Cole Show on NBC earned Cole the distinction as the Jackie Robinson of television. It ran for 53 episodes from November 5, 1956 to December 17, 1957. 
It began as a 15-minute show for 34 episodes. Back in those early days of television, a 15-minute program was not unusual. It began on Mondays at 7.30 p.m. There's a good article and episode log for the show at Jim Davidson's Classic TV Info, classictvinfo.com. The 15-minute show did well enough that Cole was given a 30-minute time slot at 10 p.m. on Tuesday nights, beginning on July 2, 1957. Cole became known as the Jackie Robinson of television for being the first black host of a television variety show. After 10 episodes on Tuesdays at 10 p.m., the Nat King Cole show moved again to Tuesdays at 7.30 p.m. The last episode in the 10 p.m. time slot and the first three in the 7.30 p.m. time slot were broadcast from the Sands Hotel on the Strip in Las Vegas where Cole was performing. So it promoted Las Vegas. The show was a platform for Cole's releases on Capitol Records. It was a promotional vehicle for his film, St. Louis Blues. It was a showcase for the talents of Cole, Nelson Riddle, and guests such as Frankie Lane, Mel Torme, June Christie, Pearl Bailey, Sammy Davis Jr., Harry Belafonte, Peggy Lee, Tony Martin, and Tony Bennett, to name only some. And for all that, it did not receive the necessary sustained national sponsorship to generate enough revenue to sustain such a program. Ultimately, Cole was unwilling to continue the television show on a shoestring at the expense of more lucrative entertainment opportunities like live performances and records, and so the show ended on December 17, 1957. In perhaps his most famous quote, Cole said, Madison Avenue is afraid of the dark. In addition to his own show, Cole was a guest on television programs hosted by Milton Berle, Red Skelton, Jackie Gleason, Perry Como, Ed Sullivan, Gary Moore, and Jack Parr, among others. He was honored on This Is Your Life, interviewed by Edward R. Murrow on Person to Person, and a mystery guest on What's My Line. According to the book Primetime Blues, African Americans on Network Television by Donald Bogle, it was Flip Wilson who finally sustained a variety show with an African American host. Unfortunately, the run of the show from 1970 to 1974 came in the waning days of variety shows on television. Sometimes progress comes slowly. Once upon a time, there were great variety shows hosted by legends like Cole, Dean Martin, Ed Sullivan, the Smothers Brothers, and many others. Those days may never return, but they're also not entirely gone, so long as we can enjoy the preserved entertainment they created. There's a compact disc titled The Very Best of Nat King Cole. It includes my favorite Nat King Cole songs, Stardust, Get Your Kicks on Route 66, Nature Boy, and When I Fall in Love. It's a nice compilation, but it is a compilation. The songs move from 1956 to 1943 to 1958 to 1947 to 1961 to 1955. Of course, you can play them in chronological order, 
but if possible, listen to the original albums like Love is the Thing, Nat King Cole at the Sands, or L-O-V-E, to hear the songs in context. Perhaps you're wondering when I'm going to mention Hazel Scott. Hazel Scott was born June 11, 1920. She died October 2, 1981. From July 3, 1950 to September 29, 1950, she hosted the Hazel Scott Show on the Dumont Television Network. Of course, that was before the Nat King Cole Show. So why is she not considered the Jackie Robinson of television? Possible answers include the facts that network television was still in its infancy in 1950, that the show lasted only three months, ending when Scott was blacklisted, that the Dumont network is too much forgotten, and that although we know when the show was broadcast, it seems that no recordings of the show have survived. I suggest that Hazel Scott is to Moses Fleetwood Walker as Nat King Cole is to Jackie Robinson. Long before Jackie Robinson was born, Moses Fleetwood Walker, an African-American, was playing Major League Baseball in 1884, before the color line went up, that Robinson tore down in 1947. Though Robinson was not the first African-American Major League Baseball player, he was the first with the monumental challenge of breaking down a color barrier in effect since the dawn of the 20th century. A new book, When Women Invented Television, by Jennifer Keishan Armstrong, tells the story of Scott, Gertrude Berg, Erna Phillips, and Betty White. There's also a biography of Scott, Hazel Scott, The Pioneering Journey of a Jazz Pianist from Cafe Society to Hollywood to HUAC by Karen Chilton. And seek out the episode of Marion McPartland's Piano Jazz from October 12, 1980 at npr.org. The featured guest is Hazel Scott, and it is something to behold. Nat King Cole was born in Montgomery, Alabama. Montgomery is home to the Hank Williams Museum, the Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald Museum, the Rosa Parks Museum at Troy University, the Civil Rights Memorial, designed by Maya Lynn, the Dexter Avenue King Memorial Baptist Church, the Freedom Rides Museum, and other historic spots on the United States Civil Rights Trail. Cole is honored with a marker from the Alabama Historical Commission in Montgomery. It's titled Birthplace of Nat King Cole and mentions in particular his television show and his 1956 performance in Birmingham, Alabama. It also notes honors he has received, including the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award and induction into the Alabama Music Hall of Fame, the Alabama Jazz Hall of Fame, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The marker is in front of the home where Cole was born. The home has been moved and is now on the campus of Alabama State University. So if you're looking to do some heritage travel, keep Montgomery and Birmingham, Alabama in mind. Earlier I mentioned Nat King Cole's singing of the National Anthem at the 1959 World Series, and there's an excellent account of that story in Will Friedwald's Straighten Up and Fly Right, and I will quote from that account on pages 404 and 405 of the book now. 
On October 2, it was arranged for baseball's biggest fan to sing the national anthem, but it was hardly the triumph he envisioned. Unfortunately, Nat's close friend and promo man, Dick LaPalme, seems to have jinxed him about remembering the words. Quote, of course I know the words, he said, but I take out my pen anyway, and I'm writing them out for him just in case. Unquote. Vin Scully picked up the story of what happened next. Quote, that was the day the wind blew the words out of his hands, and he had to fake it and as only he could do. And he could fake it, and it was still a bolt of silk. A beautiful performance. Unquote. Others didn't receive the performance quite so kindly. Cole fumbled the last two lines of the anthem and sang, Over land and over sea, and the home of the brave, thus omitting the mention of the land of the free, and changing the nature about the concluding question. It was supposed to ask if the flag was still waving, not whether or not America was actually the land of the free. The mainstream press, represented by the Chicago Daily Tribune, wrote, quote, The national anthem took a beating from Nat King Cole, who is accustomed to working much smaller rooms, unquote. Friedwald adds in parenthesis, the sports writers were obviously ignorant of how Cole had just played to well over 100,000 people in Brazil alone. Friedwald continues, The Negro press, however, gave Nat the benefit of a doubt and viewed the lyric change as an expression of the ongoing struggle for civil rights. Quote, Instead of attributing this to a slip of the tongue or lapse of memory, we are more inclined to believe that when Nat got to the words land of the free, they simply stuck in his throat. Even his patriotism cannot be placed in question because when an artistic expression was nullified by a political fact, like George Washington, Nat just could not tell a lie. Unquote. Thanks again to my special guest, Nick Vega. If you live in the Los Angeles area or you're visiting there, please visit the Grammy Museum. And wherever you are, visit the museum's website, grammymuseum.org. I'm Morris Eckhouse, host of Where Have You Gone? Our music was composed and performed by Harry Richardson. Our logo was designed by Jeff Santala. Thanks to Alan Feniger, Bruce Bonner, Mark Presser, Greg Brown, and Carl Mastercola. The Where Have You Gone podcast is produced by... Alan Eckhouse. Where Have You Gone is a production of The Morwen Company.